All right. So Oliver, thank you so much for joining us on the Proof of Words podcast. Um, before we get kicked off, maybe if you'd be so kind as to do a quick introduction of yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself for our audience. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, my name is Oliver. Uh, by education, I'm an industrial engineer, studied at University of Hamburg. But after I got my master's degree, I decided to become an entrepreneur I also fell into the uh, to the Bitcoin rabbit hole during my studies, and I was sure, okay, I needed to work in in this space somehow. So then I decided. So, to what was your? Uh, I mean, what was your engineering degree in? It was in. I assume something sort of related to manufacturing, or um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's industrial engineering and management with an emphasis on product development. So a lot of uh, CAD, like drawing, even three D printing. You know, like things you can touch. Actually, not what I'm doing today. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I, so for somebody that has their background, uh, at least from an educational side, uh, more, I mean, 3D printing is an, an incredible technology and it's amazing technology. I mean, what, what allured you to the Bitcoin or the crypto space rather than pursuing a career with something that is potentially equally as disruptive of a technology? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge nerd and I, so as, as soon as I was uh, 3D all. printing became a, became a thing back, even back in 2015, 14 or so, the first home 3D printers, you can build them yourself. And that's how I got hooked. I was like, okay, I can actually think of something, design it and it becomes real. So that was very fascinating for me. Um, but, uh, I discovered Bitcoin a few years later in 2016, around that time. And um, that was even more fascinating to me because Bitcoin is just uh, like a really well-oiled machine and uh, it has so many layers and, you know, I, I don't have to explain it to you, but the more you you fall into the rabbit hole, the more you find out it's even deeper, it goes even deeper. And um, yeah. Um, well, so what was so alluring about Bitcoin to you? I mean, obviously, uh, it, it had to be something that really spoke to you to give up a career in what's a very promising tech industry uh, to go completely down that Bitcoin and crypto rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was always uh, interested in in like our monetary system a little bit. Even when I was mm -hmm. just uh, 14, 15 years old, I started reading uh like, you really are a nerd, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I started reading about how it works because it was I was super fascinated by the fact I was like, okay, this whole um, interest rate thing, like how does it work? You know, because when you think about it intuitively, uh, which I do most of the time, you would think, okay, the higher the interest rate, the more payments of interest happen, the more money there is, and it should actually lead to to uh, um, an expansion in money supply and therefore um, should be related to inflation. But the opposite is the case. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the higher the interest rate, the less money is there. And I was so counterintuitive and it's, it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Even like if you, if you watch some of the, of the world leaders like Erdogan, he's even still convinced that a raising interest rate is actually, um, um, yeah, expanding the money supply, but it's not. So I was like, what is going on there? Like, why is this, uh, not making sense in my head. And when I first found out about, um, yeah, how credit is actually created, I was like, this can't be, this like, this can't be real. Like, because then it all fell into place and I was like, oh, sure. Like the interest rate, like determines how much new credit is created and credit is basically money printing. If you want, uh, I mean, if, if you want to look at it, at, at it this way. So I was like, yeah, finally it makes sense. 
So that's I, mean, I think why. it was I think it was JP Morgan himself that said the only money is gold and everything else is just credit. And yes, I think you hit the yeah. nail on the head. That's really all the fiat monetary system is at the end of the day. I mean, if you even look on a dollar bill, uh, I don't know if they actually have it on the euro, but the dollar bill is nothing more than a promissory note from the Federal Reserve, from the Treasury, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it isn't actually, from a fundamental standpoint, money. Now, we use it as money. It used to be genuine money when it was physically backed by gold, or at least we had to trust the Federal Reserve that there were enough gold reserves to back how many dollars there were in circulation, similar to most other currencies in the world at the time in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, the post-war uh, era. But after they went away from that and went to the fiat system, I mean, money becomes I, I mean, it's, it's frankly worthless. It's not even worth the paper that it is theoretically written on because it effectively is backed by nothing. It's just printed credit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you were asking if we have something like, uh, like th this note is legal tender, blah, blah, on the euro bill. We don't, there is only uh, usually a signature of uh, like, I don't know, Lagarde or another um, high ranking uh, central banker and, um, Yeah, that's, that's all. <laughs> that's all it means. Oh, God, that's even worse on a promissory note. You just have the trust of a signature of a corrupt politician. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah so, uh, so, so coming back to the, to the topic, that's why Bitcoin was like the missing puzzle piece uh, that I was so happy to find uh, because f then finally everything started to make sense. And you wouldn't believe um, I was talking to people that are like, 20 years older than me. They're like in their, in their, in their fifties and they have been financial advisors the whole year. Like, uh, yeah, really deep into this whole banking, um, business. And I told them about this, like how, how money is created through, through credit. And they were like, no, that, that, that's not true. Like, I can't believe that that's actually what's happening. I so, said, yeah, that is happening. Like, look it up. And they wouldn't believe me. Like people that spent their entire career in this field don't know how money is created. And that was such an eye opener for me. Um, yeah. So I think over the last two or three years, um, because of our global governance um, response to COVID, uh, which was basically, okay, we're going to have stimulus packages, we're going to print money, we're going to inject money into the system. Uh, so our economies theoretically don't collapse because we were stupid enough to shut the whole thing down. Um, I think people have kind of woken up to that fact, particularly in the West, because this is what the first era um, in modern, I don't want to say in modern history, but this is the first real era in the last 30, 40 years, ever since the 80s, that we've actually had to deal with inflation in the West. Um, I mean, we haven't really had it in Europe for some time. We didn't have it in the United States for an even longer period of time. And two to three percent inflation, which is supposedly the targets that the Fed and the ECB go for, I mean, that doesn't I mean, anyways, like the, the rates are completely off from what CPI and what other publishers put out there from what they claim it is. They manipulate that data. They manipulate the calculation constantly to keep it look lower than it truly is. So just double or triple whatever number they put out there. But nonetheless, a two to three percent inflation rate doesn't really hurt you on a year to year basis. You only start to see the effect of a two to three percent inflation rate after a time horizon of, let's say, 10 or 20 years. But all of a sudden, when you have 5%, you have 10%, which realistically aren't very high rates. I mean, we've had rates significantly higher uh, historically in the West. And I mean, interest rates in the 90s and 2000s were basically where interest rates are today. 
eight to 10% on a mortgage, right? Um, yeah. It's not unheard of. And it's not anything that is not unsustainable. But given that this has popped up so quickly, so exponentially quickly, um, the populace and banks just haven't been prepared for it. And that's why this is a bit more of a crisis than throughout history whenever we've seen rates like this. Um, so I do think that people are starting to wake up to that. And I, I for instance, I know from a conversation I actually had uh, with my mom uh, earlier this year, she did not know that the dollar was not backed by gold. She just thought uh, the dollar was backed by gold because that's what she grew up with. That's what it was like when it that's was. That's what you childhood. would assume, right? I mean, yeah. exactly. Um, like I, like you ever see those videos of uh, like comedians or I don't know, I guess some of them are TikTokers or Instagrammers and they like go and they walk around the city and they just randomly interview people and they ask dumb questions and they get really, really dumb answers. Like sometimes people yeah. go out. And yeah, sometimes them. I watch that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, th th I mean, they're pretty funny and obviously they pick and choose. I mean, if, if they interview a hundred people, maybe only two or three of them give an outrageous answer, but those are the ones that go on the TikTok, right? Yeah. Um, I hypothesize if you went out, like if I went out today on the streets of New York with a camera and I recorded myself interviewing just random people around that UN conference, I can promise you more than 50% of those people probably believe the dollar is actually still backed by gold. I mean, it wouldn't it, it would make sense. I mean, the central banks have enormous amounts of gold. Like what are they for if not to back the currency? Well, uh, probably there's a different purpose for that. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I think, uh, Hen was it Henry Ford, uh, who said if the people understood our monetary system, we would have a revolution before tomorrow morning, <laughs> something like that. Did he say something I don't know, like that? I, I don't know if it was him, but I, th I think it was. Yeah. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. I mean, if people genuinely understood how money is created and how money is used and how money comes into circulation. And again, I think people are now starting to wake up to the fact of how it is worked. I do believe that we would see a revolution. And I think that Bitcoin is one of the key centerpieces of that revolution. Now, do I think that we're going to go away from a fiat currency system anytime soon? No, um, I don't think if you're a Western government, I don't think you can, mainly because you need the ability to print money to fight wars. Like if you go into a war and you're already severely in debt, you don't have the ability to... I mean, maybe you have to bring in more soldiers, you have to uh, purchase new equipment, etc. I mean, a war effort is trillions and trillions of dollars nowadays. And we can argue to we're blue in the face if that money is just laundered or if it's used for other nefarious purposes. But let's just assume all that money is used for a genuine war effort. Uh, that's one of the reasons why in the 70s, I personally believe they had to go away from gold. Uh, they needed to fund uh, the war effort at the time. Um, I mean, yeah. it, it, do you see any future where mm. we can go back to a standard where hard assets are backing central bank issued currencies? Like with a good uh, startup pitch, you need to start with a problem first. Uh, a lot of big Bitcoiners too, they start with the solution first. So they were like, hey, study Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, it's a good approach, but people don't understand what's wrong with their money uh, right now. So. We, we need to, we need to start there in, uh, in, in my opinion. And, um, yeah. So how do you get that message out? Because 
at the end of the day, like, okay, fine. The objective that you and I would maybe have is that we genuinely push for Bitcoin or another hard asset alternative to back the fiat currency that is issued by a government. I mean, it wouldn't be fiat currency anymore. It would be a basket of assets or gold backing Mm. the dollar, backing the euro, whatever it may be. But while that is the primary objective, perhaps it might not even be the objective, but if we assume that's the primary objective, how do we speak with people? How do we educate people? How do we reach people to help them see the problem? Because my experience is that people are often very reluctant or just flat out reject the idea that the dollar, that the euro is not real money, that it's not money that, because I mean, they can use the dollar. They can use the euro everywhere they go. They get paid in the dollar and euro. Um, How do we convince them that this money is in fact poison? Yeah. So, I mean, if someone told you, Hey, this thing, this, this paper bill that you worked for all your life, it's actually worthless and someone else can create it by pushing a button and you work 40 years, uh, 40 w- uh, hours a week uh, to achieve these paper bills and someone else just creates them yeah, in, in unlimited uh, quantities if they want to. So this is like something that you really need a strong, um, uh, yeah, a strong personality for to, to, to even shoulder this because it's basically telling you, Hey, you've been cheated on your whole life. Uh, and, um, Good luck with, uh, with the rest of it. Right. So, uh, this, this is hard to, to, to handle for most people. And, um, I think with, uh, so most people have a good sense of justice, right? So they say, okay, if I need to work and sacrifice my, my time to achieve, uh, to, to get money, to get a job and then to, to receive these, these paper bills, and someone mm-hmm. else doesn't need to work to get the same paper bills, then this is maybe a vector that you can argue and be like, okay, um, this is not fair. We need to de- we need to do something about this to make it more fair, to make it a level playing field, right? So this is something that you that you could start with. But um, yeah, most people are really really not not ready for for Bitcoin. Unfortunately, um, I can tell you maybe well, an not example. Only are they not ready? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. They're fundamentally not ready to leave their governments or their central banks issued currency. I think that that maybe is the root of the problem. People just are cognitively not ready or psychologically not ready to admit that the dollar, the euro, whatever currency it is, may be broken. And therefore, I need to step into an alternative. But it's interesting because if you look at more emerging economies, um, Argentina, um, Venezuela, a lot of African nations, uh, Southeast Asia, where, okay, there's one extreme example of hyperinflation there, Venezuela. Um, there's yeah. another example of extreme inflation, not hyperinflation, but Argentina. I think Argentina's uh, interest rates recently got hiked to like 118% or something like that. Yeah, but it's you still below inflation, right? <laughs> exactly. Still yeah. significantly yeah. below inflation. But what's interesting is, do you know what the solution is for a lot of people in those areas? It's not necessarily Bitcoin. It's Tether. It's stable coins. They're using stable okay. coins like Tether and Circle because, okay, fine. You know what? I admit I'm willing to accept that my currency is fundamentally flawed. It's broken, right? It just is. However, I am not willing to admit that the overall construct of fiat currency, like the US dollar, is not broken. I mean, is there a bit of cognitive dissonance there? Um, 
that people just psychologically are not able to come over. Hmm. So yeah, um, maybe it's, uh, so there's certainly a little bit of sunk cost fallacy in my opinion. So if you like, as, as I said, if you spend your whole life working for fiat money, someone tells you it's worthless. You're like, well, but then my life was well, <laughs> wasted in a way. So I'm, I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not gonna believe that. Um, but, uh, you, you, you hit a really good point here. Um, you know, I, my, my startup that I'm building currently base note, mm -hmm. we are, um, actually tackling exactly this problem. So, um, a lot of people, especially in countries. So uh, my favorite example is always Nigeria. Nigeria has more than 200 million people. Yeah. It's, uh, it has a lot of people and they are all young. So it's not like in Germany where the, Uh, demographics look like uh, look like this so a lot of old yeah. people yeah and uh, they, they go into the, into their uh, pension uh, soon but uh, very few younger people nigeria is like the opposite right you have a very few exactly. very few old people and a lot of young people that are very tech affine they're also affine to um, to holding uh, cryptocurrencies therefore so this is one of our major um, markets actually for base node um, and what we do is uh, we decided okay These people like Nigeria, Argentina, even Turkey, they have horrible fiat currencies. Yeah. So you cannot really build wealth when you're working there. Lots of freelance workers there. Yeah. You know, lots of young people. Hey, uh, I'm not sure what the inflation is in Nigeria, but isn't Turkey like 30, 40 percent sure. right now? Something like that. Yeah. Last year, I think it was 80 or something. But I mean, these, oh, these God, are really numbers anyway. So you, yeah, I mean, probably much higher than, than that. And, um, so you cannot really save for your future. Uh, so our typical, um, our typical uh, customer um, or user at base node is uh, someone who's, for example, working to finance his uh, studies at the university. Mm -hmm. They're doing a remote job, coding, uh, designing something, whatever. Yeah. Because, um, this, that's very common there and they get paid, uh, in cryptocurrencies. So they get paid in tether, they get paid in US dollar coin. Uh, on Ethereum, on Polygon, on any of those networks, yeah, Binance chain is also very common, surprisingly. Um, and 90, more than 90% of the invoices that uh, they create. So our software is basically uh, the main use case is to create invoices to get paid in, in cryptocurrencies and stable mm -hmm. coins. More than 90% of those invoices are denominated in stable coins. Um, and this gives these, this gives, uh, This allows these people to have the chance to actually save for the future, to hold a fiat currency that only inflates by about 10% per year or so, uh, not by a hundred, which is a huge difference for them. And um, I mean, if you think about that, if you have, I mean, let's just say, okay, you live in an economy. Um, let's just take Nigeria. And like I said, I don't know the inflation rate in Nigeria, but let's just assume I mean, it's, me neither, but yeah. yeah, let's, let's say it's 50%. Um, I mean, okay. we can even just use Turkey as an example. Let's say the inflation of the Turkish lira is 50%, which is actually less than the 80, but let's keep the math simple, right? Yeah. And you earn $10 a day or something like that, right? Um, you're, I mean, after, if you earn $10 a day, you're working 40 hours a week, you work 40 weeks a year, what you're earning something like $40,000, right? Um, yeah. I think my math's right there, right? Yeah. Let's assume you own 40,000, uh, or let's keep the math simple. You earn 50,000 lira a year. Well, if your inflation rate's 
that 50,000 lira that you earned is really only worth 25,000 uh, lira by that time next year, compounded again, and it's only worth one quarter of what it was before. So just over a three-year time horizon, assuming your salary remains stagnant, you've lost 75% of your purchasing power, as opposed to if you just go to Tether, I mean, let's just assume the dollar, keep math simple, inflates 10% a year. Um, so you receive 50,000 lira worth of Tether year one. Um, okay, inflate it, it's worth 45,000 the next year. Um, inflate it again, another 10%, it's worth 40,500. The difference in your purchasing power is the difference of roughly 40,000 lira relative to 12,500 lira. I mean, that's yeah. a massive, massive... Yeah difference. It's quite literally almost four times as much money. So I get why people are willing to accept the inflation rate of the dollar. The dollar just is much more stable. The euro is just much more stable. It's than the king of fiat. Currency. It <laughs> yeah. is the king fiat, for better or for worse. Yeah. It's the king fiat right now. Um, that's, I guess that's why they call it the global reserve currency. But yeah. at the end of the day, do you not see that this still does not fundamentally solve the problem. For me, that looks like, okay, we're putting a Band-Aid on the dam because that's a good short-term fix. My fix is if I live in one of those economies, I'm going to get the US dollar. And you know what? That's a good fix for me. It's going to sustain my life. I'm going to maybe be able to retire at some point in the future because everything's in tether, mm -hmm. everything's in the dollar, but it doesn't fundamentally solve it's, it solves that microcosm of a problem in the vacuum for that one individual. And maybe it does for thousands, millions of them in that economy, but it doesn't actually fundamentally solve the problem. If anything, it makes the dollar more powerful um, mm -hmm. and incentivizes more dollars potentially to go into circulation because now the dollar has more velocity and it therefore creates more of an incentive to print more dollars, therefore making the dollar worse overall. So if you're an American, you don't necessarily want people maybe using tether um in these jurisdictions because it just makes it compounds the issue with the dollar perhaps I, I, i'm yeah. just trying to think about so, that i've never thought about that before but yeah it, it makes sense what you're saying um so but you i think you missed out on on a few other aspects so you're coming from this you're coming to this problem from the inflation perspective and it's completely right. right and that's that's the huge the biggest problem but there are other problems that we can actually solve by holding tether instead of your local uh, government currency um, so i was uh, i was having a lot of interviews with people in these emerging markets um, that are that are holding cryptocurrencies and stable coins um, in order to like get to know my target group better And right. some people told me that, okay, it's not just about um, escaping inflation a little bit. It's also about your bank not being able to withhold your funds. Because mm. uh, in some countries, so let's take Argentina. Every 10 years or so, they have uh, like a currency reset, basically, where they say, okay, we printed too much. Let's uh, start fresh. And they issue a new currency. I mean, I'm oversimplifying things, of course. But Over, I mean, more don't they less, just take like don't they just take like a few decimal points off the end? So like if you yeah, have a yeah something peso, like that. that a thousand peso is now worth one peso or something like that. Right, right. But so if you have, for example, a foreign uh, um, yeah, foreign exchange account and in Argentina, like you're holding dollar with your Argentinian bank, mm -hmm. you know what they will do at, in this event? They will just convert all your dollars. They're not asking you convert them into the new. Argentinian shitcoin currency, yeah, that they're that they're printing. So this is a kind of, yeah, 
I want to say almost theft, but uh, the so this well, is one problem. Well, another problem, argue inflation uh, is theft. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and another problem is uh, I was talking to a freelancer from India uh, in a one-on-one -on -one interview, and he told me that um, it happened to him multiple times whenever he receives um, payments from another country. So let's say someone from Germany hires an Indian freelancer and we pay them a thousand euros. Yeah. Uh, yep. So this money is then sent to India and the Indian bank sometimes decides that, oh, you know what, we're going to freeze your account and we're going to send you a survey and now you're going to prove to us where you actually got this money from, what's the purpose, what you want to do with it. And in this time, they cannot access their own money that they earned. So the blockchain... Is that an AML issue that they have? Like they just want to make sure the money is not being laundered from somewhere or what's the reason? Yeah, that sure, but imagine like... The money? Imagine not being able to, to withdraw any money for like a couple of days even. Yeah, mm -hmm. you need to buy food, you need to you need to survive. So this is this is a huge problem for those people. And um, this is something that the blockchain, yeah, uh, I mean, Ethereum, Polygon and so on, um, they actually solve this problem because no one can right. censor these transactions. If you hold your own key, I can send money to India right now in a few seconds and no one can stop it, right? So this is like another perspective on this problem. It's not just inflation, it's also monetary repression that you can escape when you when you hold your money on your phone, basically, and hold your own private keys. Exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think fundamentally, most people can logically agree that, okay, there has to be some level of AML enforcement in the banking system. Like nobody wants to end up seeing terrorists getting financed or money being laundered sure. to avoid taxes. Or I mean, I don't know, maybe I do want to see that because I think taxation is theft anyway. Um, but regardless, nobody wants to see what laws are agreed to be in place or broken. But AML seems to have gone just completely off the rails to the point that what was perhaps a well-intentioned structure um, to help stop terrorist financing or to help avoid um, uh, theft or taxation or misappropriation of assets, like what was maybe in good spirit, good faith drafted as AML laws, it seems like though it's just become completely bastardized, where nowadays these laws pose such restrictions on banks and therefore banks have to impose such severe restrictions on businesses and individuals. I mean, I think we have to sit down and actually really rethink these laws because now, whether if it was intentional or not, we can't argue uh, that these laws haven't become completely off base and borderline tyrannical for exactly the types of points you just made there. Yeah, sure. And, and so... I also I agree. I agree that we need to rethink AML um, policies, probably. And uh, I don't want to blame the banks per se, as you said. It's it's more. I think it's more coming from the regulators uh, than than the banks. Um, I would agree. And, yeah. Uh, so maybe another point. So I'm in my startup. We're using all these. Uh, we're using all these. Uh, yeah, Bitcoiners would say shitcoin blockchains. Yeah, Ethereum, <laughs> Polygon, and so on. Uh, and I wish we could actually use the best blockchain, which is Bitcoin, in my opinion. Um, but people want stable coins. They want virtual yeah. dollars. They don't want Satoshis. Like if I look at the statistics, as I said, more than 90% of invoices are in stable coins, not in, not in Bitcoin, even though we are offering it. Um, very, very few people are actually want well, to get Well, if you look at the daily Bitcoin. transacting volume of Tether versus Bitcoin, you can see what yeah. moves the most. And granted, uh, Tether is inflated because Tether is the 
on chain or whatever you want to call it, a uh, trading pair that's usually used for Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. And I don't know if maybe chain analysis or Glassnode has this information, but I would imagine that if we look at just pure remittances or payments being made, I would imagine Tether's volume of remittances far surpasses Bitcoin for the time being. Probably, yeah. yeah. So I, mean, I, I wish statistics that you have because, internally. Yeah. I mean, is, is it like 90-10 on base node or is it more more in favor of Bitcoin? Is it less in favor of Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, it, it's about 90-10, but um, we have a small sample size. So we have we have about a thousand users. We're a very small yeah. uh, company. So um, it's not really... The web, right? I mean, a thousand people is supposed to be statistically relevant. Um <laughs> Yeah, maybe yeah, <laughs> but like for 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 a company, uh, for, it's it's not a lot. Um, so uh, I wish I could actually uh, send stable coins on Bitcoin. Like I, I know that there are some um, people working on it on the Lightning Network. Yep. Um, so this is something that I uh, really wish we could do. Um, but then still, a lot of these people have wallets that use uh, Binance Chain or that use Ethereum. Uh, we right. did interviews with uh, people in Nigeria, and we asked them, "Hey, okay." You get paid in Tether on your phone, but what do you actually do with it? Like, can you actually buy stuff uh, in in your local supermarket with it, or uh, like how how far is is the distribution already there? And um, that was last year that we did this uh, interview, and um, it turns out you can actually pay your landlord, like your rent, in many places in Nigeria already with uh, stablecoins. I believe which that. is amazing. Yeah, That's so they, they're really working on like a parallel monetary system almost, um, which of course is very bad for the local government because they need someone to hold their, their local currency. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's nice for the people. Well, so there's two things you can do there if you're the local government, right? Um, the stupid thing to do would be to ban Tether, to ban Bitcoin, to ban these alternatives. Because, And I say the stupid thing because you can't stop crypto, you can't stop Bitcoin. Like it, it, It's coming for you irregardless of whatever policy you have. There's nothing you will ever be able to do to stop cryptographic technology. It's censorship resistant. That's one of the benefits of it, right? A lot of governments may end up trying to do so. Um, like I think, was it Nigeria or was it Kenya that's already outlawed um, WorldCoin? Or, uh, I'm, I'm not really is. sure, but I think it was Kenya. Probably. I think, yeah, I think it was Kenya too. Now that I think about it, um, but anyways, so the Nigerian government then is faced with two choices: you either have to embrace this or you outlaw it. I would argue it's better to embrace it, um, and you have to find a way where your own currency can exist cohesively uh, with the tether, with Bitcoin, and maybe that's by backing your local currency with Tether, backing your local currency with Bitcoin. I mean, a lot of governments around the world back their own currencies with dollar reserves, right? Israel does it. Um, uh, uh, what The Israeli shekel is largely backed by U.S. dollars by the Israeli central bank, right? Um, hmm. So maybe that's a way that you can embrace that new technology and instead of having it throw your local currency out of whack because nobody uses what is a Nigeria currency? Is it Lira? And I think it's called Naira. Naira. Okay. Um, so rather than throwing the Naira out of whack because nobody uses it, nobody holds it. There's no velocity or savings in it because of Bitcoin or tether rather you make it more stable. You make it more sustainable by backing it with those technologies, by backing it in your central bank with those assets, right? Well, um, yeah, okay. 
I don't know. So I think, why wouldn't you just use the real thing is, is, is like my question basically, but like, well, okay, so let, let I, I guess that's the third option, right? You just get rid no, of it. I'm not sure if bad money and good money or, or sound money can coexist permanently because I'm sitting. So, you know, where I'm sitting right now, I'm sitting in Berlin in the very center, right to next uh, to uh, right next to checkpoint Charlie. So this okay. is where oh, so the GDR and, uh, and the German uh, Democratic Republic were mm. divided. Yeah, I'm very close to that point. And, um, you know, there was uh, basically almost free market capitalism existing next to socialism. Yeah, And for me, it's right. a little bit like Bitcoin existing next to fiat money. So, of course, they kept it going for like 40 plus years, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, it was so obvious which side was actually better for the people that they just couldn't stop the process and they just you know they, they had to give in to to the better uh product in this in this way and i i see that i i can't imagine that bad money and sound money can permanently coexist they certainly can coexist for like a couple of years so what maybe, brings or down the uh so what brings down the fiat berlin wall <laughs> yeah um, I think it's a very slow process. So, uh, yeah, as I said, it took uh, like 40 plus years for, for the GDR to, to, to actually, uh, give up. Um, and it will take probably decades for fiat money to, to actually disappear because, um, it's, it's a journey that every individual has to make. Yeah. Uh, like maybe when you see that your neighbor, uh, who has the same job, uh, just is much richer than you are. You start wondering, okay, maybe there's something wrong with my money or something. I mean, everyone has this moment where they realize, okay, this one is better than that one. Uh, option A is better than option B. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just takes time. So, um, I would so argue David, that getting uh, David Hasselhoff out to the Berlin wall with a sledgehammer is not going to do it this time then, huh? It's not going to do it because it's, <laughs> it's a process that happens uh, on an individual level. So yeah. uh, it's, it's no point forcing that. Uh, so what worries opinion. me is that we're going to, I mean, CBDCs are another inevitability. Um, our central banks and our political leaders have realized the benefits and the merits of a CBDC. I mean, it's kind of fun. The, I mean, crypto Bitcoin began as this cypherpunk degenerate movement outside the banking system, and it wanted more transparency. Very, very, very admirable. But by creating this transparent monetary system, which fundamentally I think we can all agree is a net positive, We've also created the ultimate tool for what could be uh, fiat financial uh, tyrannical control. Uh, because now, I mean, you already had the IRS, um, the U.S. Taxing Authority, say that they want every Venmo or PayPal transaction over six hundred dollars to be recorded. Right? They want it. They want you to disclose. Mm -hmm. Every time you transfer more than $600, it's inevitably going to be the case that that's going to be more than $100 and then $10 just because the IRS and their money grubbing ways, they're going to try to do everything they can to track every single penny every American ever spends so they can be able to finance the government, right? Um, CBDC. I mean, we can, we don't have to talk about the programmable, uh, programmable elements of this because that's just another horrifying dystopian nightmare when you loop that in. But when you just think about the transparency and I don't want to call it transparency, but the complete lack of privacy that a CBDC will likely have from the government, from 
taxing authorities from the central bank anyway, it's horrifying. And this is where I think you might be right that sound money probably should over a course of a decade or so, maybe a little bit longer, replace unsound money, fiat money. But my concern is, is that the CBDC, because it will very likely be so convenient for users to have, the CBDC will be so, it, it will remove all privacy where governments can completely observe everything that's financially happening happening at banks and on an individual level, which is what they want. That surveillance is something I think all governments inevitably want. I think that when you put those two together, the simplicity and uh, the distribution that CBDC will have for local people, for individuals, plus the surveillance that it will have for three-letter organizations and governments, I see that as a massive threat that might tip the scale towards fiat um, over sound money if it's implemented in a way that I unfortunately believe that it will be implemented in. And I could be wrong. Maybe fiat currencies will be open source technology. Maybe they will protect privacy. I would hope that is the case. I don't see that happening because I don't trust anything any fucking government ever does anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. So the European Central Bank is working on a digital euro for quite some years now. Mm -hmm. And um, they were actually asking the people what they want in a, in a CBDC or in a digital euro. And most people were like, well, we want to, we want something like cash, yeah, anonymous, uh, easy to use and so on. And then they were like, okay, we can do this, but uh, there is a maximum oh, transaction. <laughs> Yeah, but like, yeah, but they, so they, they were like, okay, this is a good direction, but maximum transaction size, uh, should be 3000 euros. So you can only hold 3000 euros, maybe in the future less in your wallet, basically in your CBDC wallet. And, um, yeah, I mean, how useful is, a, is money like this? I mean, maybe it can replace cash at some points, but uh, I, so. The process why why fiat money and CBDCs are so successful is also because you can just give out uh, you can just give out gifts yeah you can you can be like yeah. oh well download the new CBDC wallet and you get a thousand euros or ten thousand euros even I mean it costs nothing to create them it's just an, a digit on a, on a screen so they can be very generous in the beginning to lure people in right. And uh, this is something that I mean, that's the work. bullshit that WorldCoin tried to do. Oh, if you come scan your eyeball, we'll give you like what was a five or ten dollars in whatever Sam Altman's shit coin was. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that, and that's how they'll get people. Hey, open your wallet. Here's a free ten dollars or maybe it'll even go worse. Open your wallet and here's a free one thousand dollars. I mean, it'll be right, it'll, but it'll be like so the COVID the, the difference. Right, right. But the difference is, so if you do this with WorldCoin, with, with uh, some random coin that has no volume uh, when, when it's trading, um, then you have to be careful. You can give people 10 bucks maybe, but if you do more, they will exchange it for, uh, an, for their local fiat currency and your course, yeah, like your, your price will just collapse. But if you do it with, uh, with the euro, which has a much larger, larger volume, you can give everyone a thousand bucks. And the government, I mean, they, in the pandemic, they used helicopter money. So, Exactly. It already happened, but you can do it digitally on the phone. Yeah. You can track the, the location of people and so on. And, um, it, it costs you basically nothing to, to convince everyone to, I mean, who wouldn't take a thousand bucks or a thousand euros for free? Yeah. Just to download an app. I mean, yeah, sure. 
almost I mean, everyone I would, would say yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I know better. Um, I know what that oh. will inevitably be used for. I mean, we've already started. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the term CBDC is a bit disingenuous because money is largely digital anyway. And of course, all money is issued by a central bank, right? Um, every, I mean, the only non-digital money anymore is the dollars that are just used on a day-to-day basis for microtransactions largely. Like you cannot, like mm-hmm. you can no longer walk into a car dealer and have $10,000 and use that as a 20% down payment on your car. You have to use you your credit card. Yeah, you, can, yeah, yeah. You, you just can't do that anymore. Um, if you walk into a hotel and try to pay that hotel, let's say you're staying there for five nights, it costs $200 a night. You try to pay them in $1,000 cash. I can promise you most likely that hotel is going to reject that transaction because they reject large volumes of cash. I mean, cash really only can be used at the microtransaction level. And if you're anything like me, if you're standing in line at the Riva, uh, the German grocery store, and you have some old person that's counting pennies or uh, little bills in front of you, I mean, you just get annoyed with it anyway because it's not quick, right? I mean, so it's a bit hypocritical of me anyway. Um, But I am just massively concerned that the capture that CBDCs will have and the convenience that CBDCs will have will outweigh its fundamental flaws and that the lack of convenience of Bitcoin, which let's just be honest, the user experience of Bitcoin right now, the user experience of crypto from a, not maybe you're in my perspective, we're used to working with this technology, but from a, but even then if I'm sending, like if I'm doing transactions and I have to send half a Bitcoin for a payment or something, it's still nerve wracking to me. It's scary. It's super scary. Exactly. Like you make right? one typo and you're, you're like, it's, it's all gone, right? So exactly, of course, yeah, right? <laughs> most people don't want that kind of responsibility. Uh, by the way, I was looking up in the Eurozone, we have a 10 times thousand euro maximum uh, cash limit so you, if you i thought it was buy something, something like more um if you if you want to buy something for more than ten thousand euro you should um you should use uh, electronic cash and some countries even have lower limits um so yeah it's it's kind of similar so i think it's mm-hmm. the same in the united states but i can't say for certain i know there is some sort of limit but just generally speaking people just won't accept the cash um, like sometimes they just flat out reject it. Um, yeah, which, it's, it's I mean, hard to I check guess, if it's real, right? You, you need this little machine and you push exactly. the bill through and then, uh, oh, I don't know, it might still be fake. And every fiat money is well, fake. So I remember yeah, when I was a kid, it used to piss me off. So every year for my <laughs> birthday, um, ever since I was like, 10, 12 years old, maybe I forget. Uh, it was the biggest day of the year, my birthday, because every year I got a fresh $100 bill from my grandmother. Um, unfortunately, she stopped doing that. I mean, she's still around, uh, but she stopped doing that maybe when I turned like 20 or something. And my first birthday that I just got a card from grandma and not that $100 was just very, very upsetting for me. But anyways, uh, I remember <laughs> okay. getting that $100 bill. Now, wonderful. I can go out, I can buy myself a new toy. Maybe I can go buy myself a new bike. Um, the reason I was upset when I turned 20, 21 and couldn't get that hundred dollar bill anymore is because, Hey, I couldn't go out drinking that night. Um, but Hey, that hundred dollar bill, it was annoying as all hell to use whenever I would go and actually try to buy something because more often than not, if you just go, and this was long time before I could ever have a credit card or a debit card. I was too young, but I mean, a, a lot of retailers don't have the ability to give you change for that $100 bill, depending on whatever it is that you buy. And B, a lot of retailers just don't trust that that $100 bill is real and they just flat out reject 
you uh, having it right which is actually yeah. there then very funny because then i moved to europe and learned that you guys have like this gigantic wampum sized 500 bill which just makes no uh, yeah but me actually, it, so the the european central bank actually um doesn't uh distribute the 500 uh anymore uh, so now the 200 is the like a collector's item Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're still around. Sometimes you can come across. They're still valid. Yeah, you can still use them, but they're not issued anymore. So over time, they will disappear. Okay. Yeah. They were purple, right? I remember I right. had one once. Um, I went to the bank and I just withdrew $500 and it gave me a $500 bill once. Uh, and I remember it being purple. God, I didn't know they, they took it out of circulation. I would have kept it. I mean, that thing's going to be worth you, you more. You can than still come across uh, one. I mean, they're like, yeah, most people don't have them in their wallets because it's a little bit too much to carry around. But uh, yeah. It yeah, I remember exists. it was like stick, like the top of it was sticking out of my wallet because yeah, yeah, I mean, they were huge about the euro <laughs> that the dollar doesn't do. I like how the actually I don't want to say this. I don't like how they're different sizes. Like all the different euro bills are bigger depending yeah. on how big the bill is. But it's yeah. actually really kind of cool how they do that. Uh, for blind people so that they can feel the bill and they can tell exactly what bill they have based on how large it is. I think that's just a really cool thing. Oh, yeah. I haven't thought of this, but yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So well, supposedly nice that's why they do it, um, it which is just interesting. Yeah. I mean, very well thought through. So people want something that they can touch, that they can actually trust and look at and not just something digital. I mean, exactly. this is something that we need to work on as as Bitcoiners that we that we need to improve. So how do you make Bitcoin more tangible? Um, like, so for, for example, like I, I mean, my old, um, my old company that I was CEO of that I founded, uh, Deutsche Digital Assets, we were one of the first groups in the world that got an ETP approved by a, a European regulator. We used uh, Boffin, uh, the German regulator, a, for a physically backed Bitcoin exchange traded product. It's the European equivalent of a Bitcoin ETF, right? And it's now trading yeah. on the Deutsche Börse and other stock markets. And mm -hmm. we call it a physically backed Bitcoin ETF, even though Bitcoin is not physical, it's digital. But from a marketing and a branding perspective, at least from a, uh, a German mentality, whenever you have those physically backed ETPs, they're usually physically backed by physical commodities, whether it be gold, silver, yeah. um, even sometimes dollars or Forex currencies are often used uh, in ETPs or it's crude oil, right? Um, but we still call it a physically backed ETF, even though it's not physical, which is kind of funny because then people, like I think German investors appreciate the marketing of that more because it's physically backed. But people ask, but Bitcoin's not physical. Why the hell do you call it a physically backed ETP? Um, I mean, how do we create that tangibility for the average yeah. lay person to truly understand what Bitcoin is? How can they touch it? How can they feel it? That, that's the, that's a very important question. So I think to have this, uh, to, you remember this scenario was like a GDR being the fiat uh, state. And then we have the German Republic with the Bitcoin state. So how do we tear, so how do we tear down this wall faster? I think step one is make, uh, make uh, cryptocurrencies, especially Bitcoin much easier to use than they are now. That's something that I also try with my startup. Um, mm -hmm. um and, Second point is make them, yeah, like you said, more tangible, something that you can touch. And there are some, um, some companies who go that way. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Open Dime, for example, yep. which is a very small hardware wallet, uh, that you can basically, um, I think you can scratch off something and then the private key reveals. I haven't used it personally, but uh, it's a very nice idea. So you can actually verify how much is on there by just scanning the public key. 
And if you actually want to spend it and not hand it over physically, like spend it digitally, you can just uh, basically uh, one time scratch something off and then you have to you have the private key and then it's basically in, invalidated. Yeah. Yeah. That's significantly so better than my method of just putting a new mnemonic in my head and hoping that I'll just remember the private key forevermore. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more efficient. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you could you could do crazy shit. You can actually create coins and put uh, little RFID chips in them, yeah, invisibly. Uh, so when you hold your phone against it, you can actually verify, okay, this coin holds, I don't know, 10,000 Satoshis, yeah, or something like that. Uh, and then you can pass them on physically. So it's technically it's possible, but who would accept a physical Bitcoin coin that they need to scan with their phone to verify if there's actually Satoshis on them? I don't know. People, most people are probably not ready. Um, I mean, if you optimize the user experience with that, I mean, the tech is already there. The tech exists, but if you optimize the experience where it's as simple as, I mean, I, so I, in Europe have N26 as my bank. I love N26 simply, I mean, it's not the world's best bank, but for how simplistic its digital app is, it's incredible. I think N26 is an amazing very strong bank. mobile first approach. Yeah. I, I also have, a, have an account with them and yeah, it's actually really, really cool to use. And it's cool that N26 is partnering with Bitpanda um, to make Bitcoin and other assets, uh, crypto assets, available via the app. Um, I think that was a very smart strategic move by Bitpanda um, and obviously very smart by N26. Unfortunately, I'm an American. So even though I have an N26 bank account, they won't let me do the crypto on it. So I haven't been able to play around with that yet. Um, I guess there's mm, a yeah. IRS or a SEC risk that they see there, whatever it may be, even though I live in Europe. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you either have to create an optimal UI UX that people are not intimidated by the technology anymore. And I think that will help individuals better adopt crypto. But that goes without saying that's rather self-evident. But I actually also think about it a bit in the opposite way, where instead of putting crypto in people's faces and um, enhancing the UI, the UX of the crypto, I mean, I can foresee a world, I mean, Get rid of CBDCs. Let's assume that that does not happen. But I could see a world where the dollar, the euro, and all of these currencies do exist as they kind of are now. But the blockchain, or rather the protocols, the layer ones out there, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. And I hope it would be Bitcoin. I think it will be Bitcoin inevitably. But these mm -hmm. become nothing more than the back end protocol ledger systems that process transactions denominated in the currencies that people are more familiar with. Effectively having a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin of Tether, Circle, or whoever creates the first Bitcoin-backed stablecoin, the way that Ethereum, I mean, but not just on Ethereum the way Tether is, but backed by Ethereum. So on Bitcoin, backed by Bitcoin. Because when you think about it, individuals, they don't when they're engaging with an application, they don't care if the application's really an iOS or Android or if they're on the web that it's HTTPS versus HTTP or TCP IP. And whenever they're sending a bank wire, they don't give a shit if it's Swift, Saba or anything. And 99% of the population doesn't even know most of those letters that I just threw out there, right? They just don't. They don't yeah. care. The only thing they care mm -hmm. about is the convenience of using that app, which Bitcoin and crypto just really doesn't have right now. It doesn't have that simple user experience. So while I could see your world playing out that way, where we enhance the user experience and people are now transacting in Satoshi, Satoshi becomes a viable alternative. I can also see a world where it remains the dollar, but the backend processing ledger, the backend protocol 
is Bitcoin. I mean, whenever you're engaging with Bitcoin there, you just don't know it. You don't like it, crypto becomes a back end layer of the global economy, but people just don't even need to know or don't even care to know that it's crypto doing it. And I'm not sure right. if that's the more likely outcome. It might be, but that's maybe the outcome that I think I would lean towards to how that all kind of shakes out. Yeah, it makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, you just have to look at all those uh, yeah, teens that use TikTok and they don't know that there's like the IP protocol in the, in the back and handling all the, the video. They've uh, never heard of IP. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you see uh, a grandma driving around in a car. She doesn't know how an internal combustion engine works. She doesn't need to. The car solves a problem in that particular moment for the user. It relieves a pain and that's all that matters. And that's why people will use it. So now, what pain does Bitcoin really solve? I think it appeals more to people who think longer term. Um, so that's why it takes so long to, to actually catch up, maybe. And um, yeah, so yeah, you I can, of course, to savers it. over the long term, like you said, because like, for instance, let's say, I mean, let's just assume inflation's at 5% per year for the next 30 years. Um, I mean, I'm 34 years old and I'm hoping to retire by the time I'm 65. So let's just use exactly 30 years, right? Um, I doubt I'll ever retire, but let's just use that as the base case. Most people retire in their 60s or 70s, right? So mm -hmm. I save X amount of dollars a year. Um, and let's say I plan on having a million dollars by the time I'm 65 and retiring, just to keep the math simple, right? <laughs> So I save a million dollars over the course of that 30 years. But by the time I get to the point where, I, where I'm using that million dollars that I saved 30 years from now, I've had 5% compounding inflation. And I don't know the exact math of that, but that million dollars over that time horizon is probably worth less than roughly $100,000 today, right? Yeah, it's going to be at least a factor of 10% or a 10, mm -hmm. uh, X less than what it is worth today. And I think right. over long time horizons, you can think about Bitcoin as being an alternative in that capacity. And certainly in emerging economies, as we touched on, where inflation is rampant, uh, they understand this significantly more. I mean, I reference this book constantly on the podcast, Alex Gladstein's um, uh, Check Your Financial Privilege. Uh, I mean, in the West, we're just not familiar with that concept because we, to your point, haven't hit mass pain of money yet. But I mean, maybe yeah. final thought, yeah. I mean, do you see or what, what is mass pain for the West? When do we have mass pain that we finally realize that the money is broken? So what do most people here in the West do? I mean, they are aware that even with 5% inflation, which I think is realistic, I mean, official numbers in the past decade were a little bit lower, but I mean, those are official numbers. So, um, what do most people do? I mean, they realize that they are slowly getting robbed basically by inflation. They buy real estate. Yeah. That's, that's been yeah. the escape hatch basically from fiat money for most of the, for most of the people here. So, uh, they buy real estate and real estate, uh, in the past decade has performed perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, almost, uh, five, 10% more every year in, mm -hmm. in, in the price. So really nice. And the max pain moment is the deleveraging from, from this real estate bubble, which we are starting to see right now, at least here in Europe. Mm. Um, um, in most German cities, prices are down already 10, 20, sometimes 30% from their all-time highs back in 2021. Um, and the so 
the acceleration I think is, is, is what's happening right now. Because if you look at transactions in real estate, they have almost come to a halt here. So very, very few transactions happening because the, the sellers, they still live in the, in the pre pandemic world basically mm. and saying, Oh yeah, but I do want half a million euros for this single family home here or something like that. Right. Uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then you have no buyers for that, but there's, uh, they will just be like, okay, yeah, maybe it takes a couple of years. Someone will buy it, but I don't think someone will buy it with this interest rates that we have right now. And with a looming recession, this will be a moment of max pain. I think once people realize, Hey, no one is buying my single family home for a million dollars in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I have to lower the price, uh, if I need liquidity and this can, this can lead to, to a cascade of effects. So maybe that's the, that's the event where, I mean, I'm, I mean, that I'm will not, have massive contagion effects, exactly as you said. Yeah, so I'm not looking forward to this, just to be clear. I'm not like, oh, yeah, finally, all these people getting uh, deleveraged. No, this is like huge pain. And I want people, like, I want to live in a society where people around me are also wealthy because it makes my life better as well. Oh, agree. So I yeah. don't want them to lose a lot of money. Um, but it seems that this might be, might be coming in, in the next couple of years or even months. Um, so, yeah, very interesting to watch this. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a very good point. I mean, so you think that, um, I mean, the straw that breaks the camel's back, if it were, uh, might be this real estate bubble popping. Um, I mean, so we've heard for a couple of years now that the real estate bubble uh, would be popping. I mean, so I, um, I spend a lot of time in Frankfurt, right? And I mean, Frankfurt has, I think, even on a global perspective among major cities, it's had like one of the top five uh, asset price inflations um, for real estate uh, just over the last yeah. 10, 15, 20 yeah. years, right? Frankfurt's just insane. Um, and every year, like we've looked at buying houses over the course of the last couple of years, my wife and I, and every year we say, no, this isn't the year real estate's going to go down. It's inevitable, blah, blah, blah. And wouldn't you know it? Every year it keeps going up. Okay. COVID happens. Oh, you know what? This is the year real estate's going to go down. We're not going to have to, we're, we're going to be able to get um, a better priced house, like what we want. Um, but Hey, it doesn't really happen. I mean, so mm -hmm. it, it, when do you really expect this real estate bubble to pop or maybe a better way to ask this is, I mean, what makes it pop? Um, I think there is one factor is uh, high interest rates. Yeah. So, yeah. and people can endure this for a couple of months, maybe even a year, but at some point you need liquidity. Like someone needs liquidity. Someone needs especially to sell. You, especially if you were stupid something. enough to have a variable rate mortgage. Um, I don't know if you do that yeah. in so, Europe, but, this, but this variable rate mortgages factor, yeah. are pretty common here. Exactly. Most people lock it in for 10 years. So at some point they have to refinance. Um, and especially here in Germany, demographics. Yeah. As I said, mm. initially we have, uh, so many older people and very few young people. And, uh, I read a statistic that here in Germany, the, actually the area, um, so, um, the square meter area per, um, um per person is on the highest level ever. So, um, okay. most of, so a lot of old people basically have maybe a house, the kids already left. And they're sitting there having a huge space that they don't really use, but I mean, they don't want to sell it. And, um, this, there's nothing wrong with people living on a lot of, uh, a lot of square meters. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. But at some point, uh, these people will go to like 
uh, to, to a pension home or something yeah, where they are taken care of and a lot of real estate will come to the market again. And with very few young families here in Germany, there are not so many buyers for that. So I think there are a lot Especially of Especially when a lot of young people, the other economic effect of this is young people have significantly less disposable income. They have significantly less savings uh, because the cost of living is just so high right now. Rent is, I mean, I think I saw a statistic like it, the boomers and the baby boomers. I mean, they were paying something like anywhere between 12 to 15% of their income in monthly rent. And it was something like 20% on a mortgage which is reasonable rates. That's yeah. perfectly fine. That's historically how it's worked mm -hmm. in the West. Nowadays, rent is something like 30 to 35%. Uh, mortgages are roughly about the same rate, if not 40%. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. crazy. So when you compound the fact of exactly what you're saying, there's going to be more inventory available as the older generations just pass. Uh, there's not going to be as much demand. I mean, there will be demand. People will want houses, but they're not going to have the liquidity. They're not going to have the dry powder to effectively purchase this because young people are existing in a world that has significantly higher uh, costs of living than the older generations did. Exactly. And this could lead to like, it's not just that uh, real estate might come down a little bit in price, but real estate is often used as a collateral you know, yes. in, in, in banks. So, if you use your, your single family home, yeah, for half a million euros as a collateral, and maybe you bought another apartment in a different city, which a lot of people do here uh, in Germany. And at some point, the bank comes to you and it says, well, actually now it's only worth 250,000 because the price came down a little bit in this area. It's not 500,000. So please uh, recollateralize your single family home. And of course, most people can just, uh, they don't have a I mean, you hundred thousand dollars the equity uh, of the home around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what happens? The bank takes uh, the real estate. Uh, the banks take uh, take the home, but they don't want to hold it. They will auction it probably, and they will um, yeah get the liquidity from it. So there's more cascading effects uh, around the corner. So exactly, and whenever um, you have those defaults and the bank auctions, um, I mean those typically sell significantly less than what the theoretical fair market value is. And what's fun is then yeah. that becomes a new benchmark. It becomes a new baseline for the other homes in that neighborhood, exactly. the other homes in that well, area. Yeah. It's, it's like a row of dominoes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, contagion from a real estate bubble burst is going to be very, very, very uh, detrimental for the Western economy. You might have hit the nail on the head that that will be the linchpin that sends this into free fall. And I think one of the biggest issues that Bitcoiners don't understand is, I mean, a lot of people think of Bitcoin as a risk off asset, right? Or uh, I'm sorry, a, yeah, a risk off asset where when other assets are failing, whenever the dollar is failing, um, the euro is failing, that Bitcoin is that safe haven. And while fundamentally, Long that term, is, maybe, yeah. <laughs> fundamentally, that's theoretically true. And I don't think it has been disproven, but what Bitcoin over the last couple of years has not proven is an ability to withstand macro environments, turbulent macro environments. Uh, yes. I mean, if you're if you're a hedge fund trader and you have exposure to Bitcoin in your fund as well as equities, and let's say you use assets as leverage, I mean, what's the first asset you're selling in, in a margin call? It's not going to be equities, which are less liquid uh, than Bitcoin. The first, and it's also not going to be those that are more less volatile than Bitcoin. You're going to try to protect your investors. The first thing you get rid of is the volatile asset. 
So Bitcoin likely goes first. Bitcoin significantly dumps in price because of it. And that's been proven to have been what happened over the last two or three years, uh, given what happened from a deleveraging standpoint across all of the lending platforms and the over collateralized funds uh, in crypto. And as Bitcoin becomes more adopted from a macro standpoint, unfortunately, that's just a reality that we're going to have to live with where Bitcoin in a vacuum does operate the way that we as Bitcoiners portray it. It is that inflation hedge. It is that uh, hard money. It is that digital gold. But when you loop in others that don't believe in that, they just view it as a speculative asset and they trade it as the speculative asset. It kind of diminishes the value drivers um, that we all perpetuate Bitcoin to have. Um, anyways, yeah, all of so, it, uh, it, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, unfortunately, oh, yeah. I do have to get going. Like I said, I have that event over at the UN. I have to go uh, sure. get over to shortly. But I'm going to definitely mm-hmm. have to make sure we get you back on in the relative near future because I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I want to learn a little bit no- more about Basenode uh, just because me being an accountant, I really would like to see a little bit more about the invoicing and accounting software. So we have to jump sure, in. Sure, yeah, we haven't talked about this at all, but it's fine. No, yeah, we I'm, were supposed I'm, to, I'm, but we didn't even get into it. <laughs> sure. All right, fantastic. Thanks for joining us on Proof of Words, uh, Oliver. We'll chat soon. Thank you. Have a good one. Ciao.